The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. I'm Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. Today, I promise, it might be the only hour everybody gets that's non-political. So we're going to keep it that way. So maybe the only hour between now and late Thursday where there's no politics involved, if we can keep it that way. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Right, Good to be here. And David Rudy, certified financial planner professional mm-hmm. and retirement income certified professional, joins us as well. And David, of course, is with us at Rudy Wealth Management as well. David, good morning. Good morning. And we have financial advisor Ryan Repko, who also is with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call Ryan. Good morning. Good morning. You can call in at 356-9397. Unless it's a political call, then you can't. Or text us at 351-5357 on that Castle Heating and Cooling text line. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. We want to invite all of those tuning in on Facebook Live. So we're using our OWL once again, our Fancy Pants uh video 360 video so you can go to facebook live if you'd like to see what the show actually looks like uh, it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indicator of is no indication of future results and you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence well fred this is the easiest question you're gonna get all week are they gonna right. raise interest rates again this week yes <laughs> And uh, that would be from two to two and a quarter percent. Right. Is that correct? So you would pre- uh, presume that uh, this is all baked into the system that everyone expects it at this point. So it shouldn't be any big shock. Uh, again, it's actually good news. It shows the economy is uh, doing well. Uh, inflation's under control. Everything is uh, good right now, which may be a little bit scary, but uh, at least right now there's no uh, no particular problem of not going ahead with that. There seems to be little bit of dissension creeping in as far as how aggressive they might be. Yeah. Uh, I suppose that's good and, and favorable, but still it looks like, look, if anything, we're going to have slow and steady uh, rate increases, and yeah. people should expect that. Yeah, the other argument is that uh, if you don't raise rates, uh, you don't have uh, that particular tool in place in case we do have a recession in the future. So if you're down around zero, there's not much you can do. And if you're and back then up get, to a, no, a near, near normal range because you have more flexibility. So they need to get those arrows back in the quiver because right. they, they basically shot their last one in uh, 2008, 2009. Right. And, and, and after the fact, even, they continued to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everything seems to be coming up roses for the most part. Uh, on the way in, I was listening to uh, a little bit of radio. Donald Trump was talking about, you know, just all the facts. Uh, and now it seems like... Well, and again, I'm staying away from politics, but so I mean, just from an economic standpoint, yeah. you know, now we're at a 50-year low. You know, it seems like last time we talked, we were at a 49-year low right. for unemployment or unemployment claims, and of course, uh, it yeah. sounds like it's pretty well rounded that everybody's participating. Yeah. And, and yeah, and the uh, the kind of uh, wild card is that we also have very low inflation at the same time. In the uh, many years past, the the a situation where we had very low unemployment was accompanied by a lot of inflationary pressure, and we don't have that right now. Yeah. Um, so and I'm going to go to a question on text. It's a good one. It's one that maybe a lot of firms wouldn't read because it has something to do with our uh, client that called in or a potential client. And uh, 
I'll, I'll go to it in a minute, but just the, our minimum size. But I want to talk about that in a more generic sense and address the, the question when we get to it. Uh, but it does seem like, uh, you know, here we have a stock market, Fred, at all-time highs. Right. And, of course, that, you know, a lot of people would say, and it's always been suggested, that's looking out forward, maybe six months plus. So that would suggest that maybe uh, for the near term, at least the next six months, maybe the expectations at least are that the economy will continue to, to to be strong or remain strong, if not get stronger. And I think that seems reasonable. Yeah, right. Everyone now is talking about uh, the not, not uh, the next uh, quarter, but maybe six months away, as you said, or more is the first period where we have to actually be watchful. Now, again, you can sometimes be overconfident, but I think sure. right now it's a, a strong situation. Things can change. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, re- very respectable returns for the broad U.S. class guys, uh, probably up some 8 to 10% for the year. Near, mm-hmm. Again, within striking distance of all-time highs just a couple of days ago. I think on Friday we were at an all-time high. We might have been down a little bit yesterday, but uh, very little, if any, at all. So here we are hovering around there. Uh, investors have to like that. Uh, we're going to talk about you know that versus a globally diversified portfolio because international investing has been a bit of a, a drag on return. So for the diversified global investor, it's still a very nice year from a return standpoint, but not near as good mm-hmm. as just someone who, for instance, bought a Standard Poor's 500 index. And uh, Dave, you wrote a blog on that we're going to get to. So that's certainly... People may be hearing this, but if they're more broadly diversified, they may, you know, they say, well, I'm not up, I'm not up 8 or 9%. Maybe I'm up 4 or 5 6%. Uh, but still, respectable gains. And, you know, with all these interest rate increases, uh, you know, we're seeing that. And we leave very little. It's rare that we have much money in money market fund guys. It's usually it's ahead of somebody needing the money here in the next very short-term period. But, you know, we've gone from a money market rates now that soon will be above 2% per year. And what a change that is in the last year when they were essentially earning nothing. Uh, and so, so for investors that are buying CDs and things like that, uh, about every uh, couple of months, they see their interest rates go up a quarter of a percent, which is why a lot of people are keeping their investments short term. And certainly that's something we've uh, managed to do. Uh, I was reading an article from Ken Langone. He's the co-founder, Fred, of uh, Home Depot. Right. Uh, just as an aside, he says he couldn't, if it was today, he couldn't start right. Home Depot right. again. Uh, may, maybe now, because he did mention in what I'm about to talk about in, in his his talk, uh, that the regulatory environment is, right. in his word, well, I don't want to say his words, because my takeaway was, if I had to paraphrase, was that there's been so much regulatory relief that essentially it's released the animal spirits. And, right. and he's seeing a boom. He even... Uh, said that they have a truck division, I guess, that they lease out trucks. And he said, yeah. we can't get new trucks until next spring right. to lease out. So, uh, you know, is that, is that, uh, wonder, that makes me wonder, is that just a tightness in the, in the pipeline? I mean, I think we, so. And also, uh, firms probably don't want to overexpand. They're, they're more careful on the upside as well as the downside. So uh, you might not want to build a new plant now to uh, make up for the backlog of, uh, of trucks. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there, uh, he has his ways and means of getting trucks if he really. Well, I suppose. I, I suppose yeah. it's probably logistics. He also, parenthetically, he, uh, is still doing well. He just they just announced that uh, the NYU Medical School is no longer charging tuition. It's because of Ken Langone uh, making a so he, uh, he certainly it's been a good business to him. He said uh, uh, every indicator for the moment is showing a clear path for economic growth. Would you agree with that, or is there some areas that? I mean, only uh, there's always a fly in the ointment, and the trade situation is um, 
still a little bit worrisome. Uh, some people have said it's not not as big a deal as including him. We, we've been thinking about that, but because the ultimate goal is not to have these continue forever, but to make some kind of deal. So I think that again, that's that's the one stumbling block. But so far, we've overcome that. Well, you billionaires think alike, Fred, because uh, Langone also agrees with J.P. Chasen, CEO Jamie Dime, who told CNBC interview that the escalating U.S.-China trade dispute is a skirmish rather than a trade war. He says Jamie is right, referring to Jamie Dimon, who, again, is the CEO of J.P. Morgan. Uh, it's a skirmish. It's a tactic, Langone said. It's our mutual interest to fix it. China is better off with a revised mm-hmm. deal than no deal. So it does seem to be that strategy of, okay, uh, let's see who can go through the most yeah. pain in the short run. And I've always had this, and I could be dead wrong, but it seems like such a controlled economy in China and there's so many yeah. hundreds of millions of people always at the doorstep of marginally ready for unrest that I think they have, a, it's, I, I really don't know, but right. my, my sense of just from all the reading mm-hmm. and I read two or three hours a day that there's a lot more pressure I think on the yeah. Chinese to get something fixed. But it's also, I, I think a little worrisome the, the uh, Bob Woodward books suggest that uh, Trump has been de- uh, deterred by uh, it's advisors from doing these things, and as he gets rid of more and more advisors, maybe there'll be less. <laughs> maybe we could actually go from a skirmish to a trade war. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? Sorry to get into <laughs> politics. But <laughs> That's why I was like to have Fred, you know, here's that, you know, that rosy cloud there. <laughs> so, no, you are, you are an optimist. I know that. Uh, we're going to, let's see, let's take that, let's take the text guys and talk about this. And again, the easiest thing for me to do is to try to sidestep it and not address it. But I'll give you, it's the text. It's from Mike in Champagne. It says, and I'm going to move my microphone if you hear a little. Hello, Rudy guys. I recently sent a message, uh, to the company and referring to our company, I'm sure, asking about what it takes for someone to help uh, me do some planning to make it short. I was told if I didn't have 500,000 in assets, your company wouldn't be interested in being an advisor. Well, we wouldn't, we certainly didn't say it that way. And I think Mike would agree. I think that's his paraphrasing and we'll, we'll get to our business model. And part of that dilemma, um, that some firms are talking about, about, you know, uh, you know, we always have to have a mechanism so everybody can be served with good financial planning and, uh, part of the skirmishes that are going on in the regulatory area some are suggesting it's going to make it harder for people with lesser sums of money it's a lot of money to them but with lesser sums to get that financial advice so i'll go on with the question uh can i ask why is it because you wouldn't earn enough from me to profit i'm not criticizing i'm just wondering why someone needs to be that rich uh for help would it be fair to say the people at rudy wealth don't care much for the middle class see i told you i shouldn't read this but <laughs> i like to be transparent and, and right. i don't think it's anything we need to we need to run front of we're going to discuss it and i think it will make sense to people would it be uh, uh fair don't care much for the middle class oh well considering we are the middle class <laughs> i don't think we're guilty of that uh, but I understand where he's coming from. Just so we're aware, uh, there are probably more of those people listening in the radio show uh, than the really rich. Five hundred thousand is a very high level for most qualified Mike and Champagne. So let's 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 talk about this. Though I bet if we had an agent, they'd say not to. But this is this is something that we speak about in the company all the time. I've never had in my thirty-five years until the last year, I've had no minimum requirements to become a client. Now, any business coach in America will tell you that if you want to be a profitable uh, financial planning and investment advisory firm, you're going to have to have some type of threshold. Uh, 
otherwise you'll end up trying to serve so many people that you'll serve nobody. I mean, that's kind of my sense of it. You can't be all things to all people or most things to most people. So we we kind of have a niche, and you, you kind of have set up. Brian, did you have something you wanted? To, okay. yeah. I thought you were, I thought you were pointing. Yeah. Oh. I, what I was going to say is just addressing the the question head on. It's something that we actually wrestled with internally. Like, is this something we want to do? And I think we kind of came to the decision that it was something we had to do out of really out of no choice, simply because there's only so much bandwidth all of us have. And uh, when it comes down to making sure that you're running a business that is not a nonprofit, which we are not a nonprofit, you have to make sure that you don't come out in the red. And I think for us, it was it was a real pull at our heartstrings thinking that here we are trying to segregate ourselves from people. Really, it was just coming down to a simple decision that as a business, we have to keep moving forward. And But we can still help people on the way, giving free advice to folks, even if they don't meet our, meet our minimums. I think that's key. Uh, that's kind of where I was headed next. Usually the approach is, and, and, and really, Mike and anybody listening to this, we really do sit around and try to figure this out. Uh, and, and, and most, if we, again, if we hired a business coach, they would tell us to make it a million or two million. Uh, but, but I'm not comfortable doing that. We try to help anybody that needs help and wants help. So... Would it be fair, David and Ryan, um, to say that if we find out that it's a relationship, it really comes down to we can't we can only add so much value in a person's life, and we want to make sure for sort of our minimum fee that the people are going to get a fair shake and a fair deal for us to run our business model. So that kind of forced us there, but but I think it's every time we try to help at some level, and then it becomes pro bono. In other words. Uh, and I've heard David do it. I've heard Ryan do it. You guys have heard me do it. Spend a half hour or 45 minutes on the phone with somebody uh, discussing their situation and giving them directionally, because uh, many times it's, it's an acute issue, uh, an approach. And generally, we'll, we'll, we'll even be as specific as to say, look, it doesn't sound like your your issue is really all that complicated. You could do something as simple as going to Vanguard yourself, You know, save our fee. Save yourself some money because maybe it's it's not a, an issue where it requires full-time planning like most of our clients do. And even point them in the right direction from an investment standpoint. And tell them, look, as long as you quit listening to financial people for the most part and stay away from people that sell products. Uh, and if you go to Vanguard and do something as simple as maybe buy the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund we and spend maybe 3 to 4% a year from that increase a little bit each year so we always go out of our way mike uh and i think david did that in this case um to really try to give people help uh even if it takes an hour out of our day pro bono to get those people pointed in the right direction i wish there was a solution guys and david last week we had this you know i we talked about is there a solution we're missing where we could help people that don't have a half a million dollars uh, or so. Uh, and and we, we scratch our heads and we think about it. I thought about hiring one more young person that just dealt with small uh, accounts. But we are in a heavily regulated environment and that's just one more. So a lot of this gets down to practical business things. Dave, I think you have something you wanna. Yeah, I, I think the first thing to just say, like Ryan said, basically directly is, there's a cost to running a business and you have to have a certain amount of revenue for each client just to offset the cost of taking on that client and make sure that you're profitable so that you can stay in business and help people at all. Because if you don't do that, then eventually you're gonna go out of business and you're gonna help no one. So then the question is, or really the, the key issue is, what is our target client? What do they look like? And what is our pricing structure? So 
in other words, how are we going to get paid right. at least enough to make enough profit to be a sustainable business? And for us, our target clientele is retirees. And retirees tend to have, I mean, in order to retire, you have to have a pretty big level of assets built up to help support your lifestyle if you don't have a, you know, a big pension or something like that. Sure. And not only that, they're decumulating from their portfolio. So their portfolio is going to be shrinking over time. And we're charging a fee on the assets under management. So for us to basically set our minimum price at a level that allows us to be profitable, we have to set a minimum asset level. So there are alternatives to that. But either way, someone's going to get paid. So that's kind of my breakthrough was, well, there are other businesses out there that specifically target clients that have lower asset levels. There's and, an we're, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those because I want to take a call in a minute. We'll go back to this. So let's drop a die marker there. Uh, maybe this call will be related to this. Maybe it won't. Uh, but we're, I want to go over some, some of the suggestions we make, including right. like Vanguard that has their personal portfolio management for three-tenths of a percent, which for many people is going to work. Uh, again, we have no affiliation with Vanguard. We have no reason to, no conflicts of interest or reasons. There's no quid pro quo. They don't know we exist. Uh, and we continue as people who listen to the show know. And one other comment I make is doing this show alone, which takes a lot of, lot of our time to prepare for the show, to do the show. It takes time out of our month and days and weeks to prepare, prepare for this show. I like to think, I hope that this show is our way of saying, look, not everybody has the financial wherewithal to hire a financial planner that you know, may have a minimum. What we've tried to do for almost 30 years now on this show <clears throat> is give people the right questions to ask, give them uh, ideas of where they might go to seek that help, such as Vanguard, personal portfolio management for a very low cost, their investments at a very low cost. It's not unusual for, you know, so I like to think that th this is our way of serving everybody that needs help, not just people with 500000 or more. And uh, so I'd like to at least bring that up. So uh, it, uh, Rob has certainly been patient. Rob, thanks for calling. Paul Rudy's on the money. Hey, good morning. You just stole my thunder. I did? Yeah, you guys have a vehicle. It's called this show for people with less than $500,000 or thereabouts. You helped me tremendously over the years, and I appreciate that. And just want to remind you that I'm assuming that's what this show is all about, aside from just helping other people realize you guys have a service that's worth using. But uh, for folks that cannot uh, meet the threshold, we, we, myself included, have gotten tremendous help from your program. Well, it's kind of you to say that. Uh, uh, you know, it's very kind, and we appreciate that very much. Anything else, Rob? That's it. Thanks. All right. Thanks for calling, Rob. Yes, I was going to uh, sort of reiterate, reiterate what you were saying, that <clears throat> basically there's a fixed cost involved of doing a financial plan, whether you're $200,000 or a million dollars, right. and the fixed cost is fairly substantial. And you could go to a, a time-based charge system, which you probably don't want to do. And, and the other thing which you mentioned, uh, and we talk, talk about more broadly, uh, I think you usually don't have a lot of good things to say about robo-advising, but if someone's in this beginning category and wants to get up to that $500,000 threshold, uh, a, a far-out target date fund with a robo-advisor is probably a way to get you to the place where you can uh, move into this category. And, and there's, a, there's a number of choices there that you can pay as little as maybe a quarter of a percent or less uh, for that service. Uh, Dave and I discussed that just last week. We're saying, well, 
you know, we we want to go there and say yes, that is a it is a great service. But then on the other hand, it's really we're talking about allocation, and if they could get someone to guide them, then they can go directly to Vanguard yeah. and kind of get to the same place. But you're right, there is more and more choices. But for people that want a comprehensive, you know, that really. I think, you know, when people hear, and again, this is I'm transcending politics, I hope, um, it's a highly regulated business. I mean, the cost to be in the business we're in now compared to 10 years ago, it's incredible. Everything we do has to be archived. So it probably costs us 10 or 15,000 a year just to archive our blogs and our emails. I mean, things that probably are sensible and you should do. But the cost structure to be in such a regulated business, and, and, and I'm not arguing against the regulation. I, I think some of them probably I don't agree with, but for the most part, you get swept. Even though we're, a, you know, I would consider ourselves a small firm. We manage around a quarter of a billion dollars for people in town. Uh, I think that's a lot of money, but in the compared to a lot of folks around the country, we're not that big. But we get swept into the same cost that the multi-billion-dollar firms get. So. Uh, anybody have anything else? Well, to I think, uh, go ahead. Frank. Again, I'm not a fan, financial advisor, but if you're talking to a young person starting out, I think you could tell them in, in maybe a minute. Uh, first do. of all, use use your 401k, 403b as much as possible. Uh, yeah. Save as much as you can, and put a lot into equities and, and invest passively at low cost. We and, love and, and wait until you get to this threshold. I, that's a great point, Fred. And and we, there's nothing we really enjoy more. If I get a couple that walks in, a young couple in their 20s, 30s, 40s, that uh, keeps expanding as I get older. Now it's 40s, <laughs> uh, young people. Uh, there is nothing I like to do more for no cost than to spend an hour with those folks that are really trying to be good stewards of their money for their family. Uh, and a lot of it is what you said and probably an equal amount is mistake proofing. Uh, we tend to under we don't talk much about mistake proofing, but if you can give a young couple the guidance early on and talk about here's the three or four big mistakes most people in your position will make. Don't do these things. If you feel like you're going to do them, call us. We'll talk you out of it, and uh, we, you know we'll spend five or ten minutes on the phone. Uh, so I understand, Mike's this this when they were trying to. Uh, in the last couple of years, they were trying to pr- uh, pass the fiduciary rule. Well, anybody dealing with retirement money, uh, you know, whether 401ks, IRAs, 403b plans, anything associated with a retirement type plan, they were trying to pass a regulation that you had to get this guy's, put the client's interest first, ahead of yours, ahead of your firm's. I mean, it seems like common sense. Uh, since then, of course, we've had firms, major brokerage firms and insurance companies lobbying against their own clients <laughs> to, for that. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me why they would lobby against their own clients in order to just make more profits for themselves. But the whole point is part of that discussion was where's that going to leave the people with smaller balances? And unfortunately, many times they're left to this sales, the product end of the business. Now, there's nothing inherently just wrong with that, but we see more problems walking through our door that comes out of that environment instead of the fiduciary base, put the client's interest first base. And that is a concern of mine. Yeah, and I think something that we should probably talk about is what are the options that people have available to them aside from just robo-advisors? So, so what do you tell people when they call and you have to give them that, which 
again, look, my dad ran a clothing store and raised five boys. I, I you know, talk about we used to look up to the middle class people. Uh, so I, I and, and I didn't raise my kids to be that way, and Ryan wasn't raised to be that way. So we really do try to help. So when they do call, David, what's that conversation like? Well, I think the first thing is a lot of times people with lower asset levels are younger people, and they have very simple needs. And especially if they're just looking for investment advice, I tell them, look, you probably shouldn't be paying a financial advisor 1% of your assets just to build an investment portfolio for you anyways. In fact, you can go straight to Vanguard and say that it's a young person. You can buy one fund, the Vanguard Total World Stock ETF, and call it a day. Which is an exchange-traded fund. It's much like a mutual fund, but when we use those, I like to back up a little bit. Yep, yep. Basically the same thing, a little different wrapper. And the reason I recommend that to young people is it's free to trade if you have an account at Vanguard. Um, So that's kind of option number one is just do it yourself. Things can be really simple when you're young. And you can point them in the right direction, even right down to here's the fund that you buy. It might be that fund. And as Fred said... uh, you know, if you can do that along with don't buy whole life insurance, just buy term insurance and buy more than you probably think you need. Uh, don't take a variable rate mortgage. Uh, take a fixed mortgage and put the interest rate risk on somebody else. Don't buy more house. Just because you can make the payments doesn't mean you can afford it and give them a sense of a f- what, what the difference between affording something and the ability to pay for it. Those are two different things. Uh, don't invest in bonds in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, for the most part. You know, I'm broad brushing here, so don't, and this is not advice for anybody who's listening to this to say, well, Paul just said I'm in my 40s, I shouldn't buy bonds. That's not what I'm saying, but, uh, so I'm taking, a, the, the, you know, I'm taking the ability to paint in broad brushes here. And by the time that person gets off the phone or gets, comes in to see us, and it's not that we won't visit with them, uh, pretty much, they've gotten, they just drank out of a fire hose of financial education, and where our nature is very protective. I, I think to a to a person in our firm, I almost said to a man, but oh, would that cause a problem? Because <laughs> Rose, who works for us, of course, she's my sister-in-law, <laughs> and my wife works for the firm, so there's females there. Uh, we're very protective, and I've noticed that with watching you guys too, your conversations are as much about. Here's three or four things not to do along with the here's the one or two or three, as Fred said. And make sure you pick up 100% of your match in your 401k or 403b plan. Uh, don't take on a lot of consumer debt. Don't invest you know, your 401k money when you're trying to accumulate wealth in bonds. You know, Put it 100% in stocks or as close as you can stand uh, along with that mistake proofing. Well, we do have a couple calls uh, that have been waiting, so I'm, and we can always go back to this. Uh, it seems to strike an interest. We're going to go to Mark on line one. Mark, thanks for calling. Paul Reed's on the money. Well, thank you, guys. I uh, enjoyed your shows each time they're on. And do not disagree. In fact, agree with what you guys are saying. And you guys are covering it quite well. But I do, you said uh, $250 million is roughly what you're under management. So your fees, I'm assuming, are 1%. I don't know. I, I would say, and I don't know how many employees you have and how many you're trying to feed and various things but that'd be pretty good in champagne urbana wouldn't it? getting two and a half million dollars for a well you're making an assumption that that's our one percent fee we have some we have some correct. you're right and you admitted it uh you have we have some very large accounts that are part of that we we have some very large accounts so you know the fees can you know i wouldn't i i'm not to not get into our business with it but uh 
I would agree. I wish we were getting 1% on every one of those assets. And again, I approximately 250 million. That's another regulatory issue. Uh, I haven't looked in the last few days. We were at 247 million. I don't know. Uh, so please, just it's lower than that me. right now. Okay, by so a little bit. Just okay, just slightly clarify. lower than that. So. You knew the sun would know, right? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I yes, at, you I, knew the sun, <laughs> Mark would know. <laughs> so they they, they well, look David, they look David, at it. David would know. Yeah. David would know for sure. So uh, it's a nice business. Well, don't get me wrong. We, we've been very fortunate. Uh, we were just recently chosen as the People's Choice Award winner. We've had some good wind behind our back. The kids have really added nicely. It's a great family. You know, spoken like a true father. We all get along. We get we have our own roles. Uh, it, it's a profitable business. Uh, everybody makes a decent living. You don't see any, you know, I'm still driving my 2007 Chevy Suburban with 204,000 miles on it. Dave, you're still driving an old car. Ryan, you drive an old, so I mean, uh, we've kind of gotten to be a pretty frugal bunch, but thank you. Uh, we have a very nice business because we've been blessed by the show, the ability to have this uh, show and, and to, to expose people to how we think, how we protect people or try to protect people. Uh, we really think it. We hope it's a service to the community, and because of that, let's face it, it's been very good to us as well. Uh, we have. A I just want to bring a, a little bit of a maybe a balance. That's all. Yes, sir. I'm not. Uh, I'm glad not you did. Stick or anything. Oh no, no. I I appreciate that, and 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 it's a good observation. Well, and I think How it actually. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It actually brings up another important kind of consideration that I thought through during uh, our conversations about implementing an asset minimum. And one of those is if you look at an advisory firm, uh, if you run it right, it can be a pretty high margin type business. And sure. what that means is that especially if you have a good number of clients that are paying you large fee revenue amounts, then you, you can afford to take on some that are frankly just not profitable. You're literally right. taking the loss on those, but you have enough revenue to offset that because of some of the uh, people that are paying you larger fees. Right. The question to me is, is that really fair? So we have one person that's taking up an equal amount of time that we're losing money on and we're basically he's taking time away from that person that's paying us a, a much larger fee revenue and and for for me it's look we need to make sure that we're not disserving our current clients who are paying us a a, a handsome a, fee a handsome fee and taking on clients that um just aren't as profitable and and will ultimately we we only have so many hours in the day take time and attention away from from their account and, and would it be fair to say that we talk about this at least monthly and looking for a solution in-house again i've thrown it out to the guys why don't we find some young certified financial planner that doesn't have views of wanting to own part of the company you know because it's a family company and there's all kinds you know every employee you hire ask anybody that hires a firm with each employee comes a new set of problems and costs and you know potential risk to your business if you say the wrong thing and if anybody knows me they know i'm you know i'm always one comment away from losing my company uh, i'm trying to be better now that i'm older uh, so this is a real dilemma and thanks for people indulging us and let us answer the question uh that was given to us by mike and hopefully it's helpful and I'd like to add that we still t are glad to take phone calls and help anybody we can and point them in the right direction. doesn't mean we're not going to talk to you. It just means you may. we probably just aren't going to be able to justify the value proposition if you have less than $500,000. So it's fair to say. And I think to end on a really practical, beneficial note for the listeners who maybe they just for whatever reason really want a financial advisor, they don't want to do things on their own, but they don't have a, a high level of assets built up yet, 
Uh, there are options out there for you. So one is there are financial advisors who charge hourly financial planning fees. So if you really need financial planning, not just investment management, you can Google search hourly financial planner. There, there are good financial planners out there, even in the state of Illinois that I know of, right. um, that do that. There's a firm in town that I'm pretty confident charges an income-based fee. So if you're, you know, if you don't have assets built up, but you have a job and you have an income, then you can charge. It's basically a flat. I think you're going to find that those are still. To, you you have to be what some would consider beyond middle class, maybe. And then there's a, a kind of more up and coming option, and it's more geared towards younger people. But frankly, the advice could be given to anyone. Sure. Is there's a group of financial advisors called the XY Planning Network, and they buy like the rules of the group are that you have to offer a monthly retainer fee option. So it's kind of like if you pay you know a hundred dollars a month for your cable bill. You just have another $100 a month payment for your financial advisor. So there are great options out there. And then the last one is Vanguard Advisor Services. So that's an asset-based fee, um, and they have, I believe it's a $50,000 minimum. But that's lower than And there's a national firm, Edelman Financial. I don't like to do commercials for other people. And I'm not endorsing them, but I'm talking about options. And it's a reasonable option. I think they philosophically, from an investment standpoint, would align themselves with, you know, we'd be aligned with them. Right. Uh, I think they have a $5,000 minimum. Now, you might pay 2% fee, but that's 100 bucks a year. And you get to talk to an advisor. So there are options out there. Right. Unfortunately, we just can't be all things to all people or most things to most people. I think it's a good conversation. I'm glad Mike asked the question. I'm glad we covered it. I mean, again, the easiest thing for me to do is just to ignore that text and not, you know, lay out kind of a little bit about our business model that probably most people might not be interested in. But uh, we're going to go. Rob's been, uh, Jim's been so good uh, for hanging in there. Jim, thanks for uh, hanging on for Paul Rudy's On the Money. How can we help you? Well, Paul, I just want to thank you, because uh, years ago, I came in, I had uh, two accounts, and I wanted you, I wanted to separate, uh, I wanted to have you take one, and you wouldn't. You said you had to have all of them, and uh, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but uh, I accepted it, and you were very nice, and you told me things that I should that would possibly be good investments which turned out to be excellent which one was Vanguard so I want to thank you because you really helped me well thank you thank you very much it's nice of you to call in and say that there's no but like but you're a fathead Paul <laughs> so <we'll> say, <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, and we, and we appreciate it. And again, I think that, uh, and, and, and thanks, Jim. Uh, and I think, guys, I think that's at least demonstrates, hopefully, and, and trust me, folks, none of those calls, we don't know, those calls were not planned, and we didn't even know this text was coming in today. Uh, that conversation, by the way, was interesting. That was not a, it met, more than met our required minimum uh, account value at the time. That was more of my philosophically principled idea that that people, if they're going to have an advisor, should have one. A person that has two advisors, I've never seen that work well uh, for uh, for an for a family or an investor. Uh, and, and so, you know, I always go back to you know Eisenhower when he said, "I'll fight the whole war or none of it." So that was more of me, my willingness to let a substantial sum of money that I would have been paid each year for many years. Uh, just because it, you know, it just I won't do anything that deserves the client, and I felt like if I participate in that, I'm really going against my principles. And as much as I would have loved to have that income stream, I felt it was in that client's best interest to choose one, 
And I remember my comment was, uh, you know, you already have an advisor. Why are we having this conversation? And that was my just not trying to be cute way of saying, hey, look, you got your person. Go, go, go but, to that person. Yeah. You also end up uh, in, a, in a kind of strange situation where you have to figure out what the other advisor is doing and of course. De- defend against what they're doing. So it, it does make sense to uh, have two people basically operating against each other. That is certainly one of the things that, that is one of the actual issues that when I say deserves the client uh, I, I've never you know and the other part the other side of that coin is almost it's I could say it's almost true to everybody most firms that might be the other party is probably going to be less diversified than we are from my experience we're in if to the extent we're in stock market and the great companies of America in the world we're gonna be in 12 or 13,000 companies um, that's not the typical strategy and so what happens is now you end up with one advisor that may be non-diversified, and I'm not saying that's negative, I'm just talking about it's just a less diversified strategy, and ours is massively diversified, and, and this is the story I tell anybody in this position. I can promise you that over the next three to five years, one of us is gonna do a lot better than the other, and you're going to mistakenly, in my opinion, and it maybe it's me, and, so, and then you're gonna assume that I'm smarter than the other person, and you're gonna take the money from them and give it to me, probably when it's gonna turn around and go a different direction. And so that's when I get into this. It makes it, it. I just don't think it serves clients. I think it deserves them. And I. It's just my. It doesn't make me right. I have a very strong belief that you hire one advisor and pick the right one. You'd be really careful when you pick an advisor. Anything else on this issue, guy? I think we worked it over pretty. Well, hard. we talked about last night. It's the same uh, variation of. I just inherited a hundred thousand dollars. What should I do with it? Yes. And the answer is. I can't tell you unless I look at everything. Right. Really, no decision. That's a great point, Fred. And and. and and, and David's come to me and Ryan has and hey how are we going to handle this and you know I'm, I'm frequently saying look the only way to make that decision is in the backdrop of a financial plan because trying to do it in a silo is probably not going to be the optimal solution so it always has to be well what if I spend an extra 50000 this year well I don't know let me run it in the plan let me pull it out and see what it does to your overall life plan or what would it do if I inherit 200000 how should I invest it it's, again, it's going to be in the well. Let's put it in the backdrop of the current plan. Let's see if we need to change the plan based on this. Maybe change the allocation. Maybe we move up the retirement. It could be a, a lot of things. And that's where it kind of circles back, Fred, to what we do is a very active role in people's lives. Because I haven't met anybody yet, if you live long enough, that every few years something is not happening in their life. We call them curveballs. Sometimes they're good curveballs. Sometimes they're not so good. It's rare that a plan from day one stays the same. You know, even a year or two later, there's going to be modifications to the plan. Hopefully, most of them are positive, and the negative ones hopefully are modestly negative and temporary. And uh, so, it's a we play a very, and I think any good financial advisor does. So it's not just us, but a, a, a excellent investment advisor and financial planner and retirement planner is going to spend a lot more time doing shadow work than you recognize that they're doing. Uh, it's not just that one or two hours that you meet with an advisor a year. There may be five to 10 to 15 hours behind that doing a lot of stuff that people just don't see. And that circles back to David's point that we have a business model and all circles back to that business model. And how do we serve our current clients the best? So I, th- I think I probably beat that up <laughs> plenty. So, But thanks, Mike, for the observation. We're sorry we couldn't at least have you become a client. I'm sure you're, we're a delightful person. Uh, David, you wrote a blog, What to Expect While Investing. Now, we have about 15, you know, 12, 13, 14 minutes. And we might just start on this today because I think it's very important. 
uh, because we talk a lot about, for example, we might say you can just buy the Vanguard, Vanguard U.S. Total Market Index Fund is an example to consider. Now it might be the Fidelity Total Market Index Fund because there's actually no cost at all. But again, it's really no significant difference. Uh, and that's probably default. And I've probably said that a hundred times in the show. The default investment position from a stock market standpoint should probably be that. But that's not the same thing as me saying, but that's what everybody should do. And we've obviously over the years and it's been consistent I've this way since 1990, about the time we started this show, uh, have taken a global approach. And so in other words, we build what would be considered an unconventional strategy and not unconventional. I mean, it's, and it's all based on good evidence that says, look, well, first of all, from a diversification standpoint, it makes sense. But when we look at these other factors that we invest in like value and small companies, uh, there's a lot of evidence that say, well, if you're going to move from that total U.S. stock market position, which should be the default, you should have an expectation that it may, that it's sensible and you're going to earn a premium return to do that. At least that should be an expectation. But sometimes the unconventional portfolio doesn't do as well as the conventional just buy the Vanguard S&P 500 or the total U.S. stock market index fund. And I think your blog, blog had a lot to do with that and saying, well, what does it take to be a successful investor? and you're going through periods like this that stir up emotions. Uh, one of the first things you put uh, on the blog was, uh, what was the, the first exp uh, expectation, sorry, people should have, it would be expect temporary declines. That just sounds obvious. Well, why even bring it out? Well, it may be more than, I think people understand that there are gonna be declines, but I don't know that they understand the, the true magnitude that declines can have, and also the, normal frequency of them. So I tried to kind of put a little bit of color to that. So um, the first thing I mentioned was just the statistic that a correction, which is defined as a decline of more than 10% in the stock market, they happen on average every single year. Right. I think the actual uh, data is like the average intra-year decline is somewhere around 14%. It is, yes. So if you're going to be a stock investor, you need to be prepared to see your money drop 10 to 14% every single year. Like a crosstown bus. And that's not saying it will happen every single year, but it's saying typically it, it happens on average about once a Th year. That'd be like saying, look, it, it, Januarys are cold, right, in Illinois. Right. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what you should expect. So it's like you just need to be ready for that. And then I think what causes more problems than those corrections are what people call bear markets. And bear market is really just a term that we use to say, basically refer to a big market decline. The technical definition is greater than 20%, but they average about 30%. And as far as fre frequency goes for those, if you just look historically, they've happened on average about every five years or so. And again, that's on average, so there have been times where they hit closer together than that and times where it goes longer uh, in between bear markets. But that's a pretty frequent kind of level to be experiencing basically a third of your portfolio seemingly, seemingly disappear. And, you know, my takeaway, first of all, was one, this can be really scary. Two, it's natural to want to try to avoid these things. So you say, okay, well, these are pretty scary. What, what can I do to predict these and, and basically get out in advance so that I don't have to sit through them? And that is a fool's errand. I've never seen anyone do it consistently. Usually, even when if people get out at the right time, they then they get stuck on the sidelines too long. And so, my warning to readers of the blog was: 
instead of trying to predict these things, just know that they're going to happen. They're going to happen regularly. And when you have that expectation, you have realistic expectations and you're not surprised by them, you're a lot less likely to panic and sell when they do happen. And what do you think about the periods where you go an extended period of time where you're seemingly making no progress where all you're doing is treading water or you're kind of there maybe giving you a little paper cuts uh, over a 10, 12 month, two year period. I mean, those, those can be from uh, being able to stick to your planning. I think might even be more because there's at least enough people that if that, that recognize, well, if, if my, if my, you know, hundred thousand dollar stock portfolio is only worth you know uh, eighty thousand temporarily. I'm not going to sell because I know that there's enough people kind of I think learning that. I'm not so sure that's true about the patience factor, the faith, patience, and dif- discipline factor during extended periods of going nowhere. It's almost like it's not interest, folks. It doesn't get paid every quarter. You earn your learn returns in a lumpy fashion. But isn't that one of the more difficult challenges that investors experience? I think so, and, and I think people don't realize how long those periods can be. So the the most recent and most popular example that people will use is what's called the lost decade, and that's really based on one asset class, the 500 largest companies in the U.S., but if you look at the performance of the Standard & Poor's 500 between, it was essentially the beginning of 2000 to the end of 2009, uh, your money would have actually declined about right. 10%. Um, that's an an entire decade right. where you were treading water. Now, obviously, With two, like I said, fifty uh, percent declines in between. Yep, that's that's one asset class, and globally diversified investors fared better. But that the principle still holds. Right. There can be several year periods where you're essentially earning no return on the stock portion of your portfolio. Yeah, I came into uh, 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 investing in it around 1970, so I had 12 years of. Uh, of you, you, you know uh, what the and, grind and, is, but I didn't have the faith in either. Uh, I was sort of not knowing what happened. I was at a loss to know what to do. And really, even we go back to that period, it's 1970. That's really for the first time when a lot of the data was coming out as to what to expect from expected returns, yeah. wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was before. I'm, I'm sure people were talking about uh, passive investment and that, that kind of stuff, but it wasn't really. Uh, but wasn't in, in didn't, vogue yet. didn't Ibbotson and Sinkfield right. do their stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation? Didn't they? They started right. somewhere around 1970, and right. really prior to that, there wasn't this universal idea that stocks even earned more than bonds. Right. You know, because the computer power hadn't caught up. You know, actually, uh, there was a uh, a story in the Wall Street Journal, in, uh, no, in the uh, in Newsweek. Uh, Paul Samson, who was uh, probably the most famous economist of the second half of the 20th century, wrote a weekly column or bi-weekly column, and he said, uh, I've invested in TIA craft half, I put half my money into the uh, bonds and half into the uh, equities, and after 10 years, they're both the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in those days, it didn't seem like it was a big choice between equity and, and bonds. Yeah, and, 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 and a lot of people just tr- treated them as almost they were the same, and they didn't really expect that stocks would have that much better of a return, and, and of course, given... You now you give it decades beyond that, you realize there's this massive difference. And that was part of your blog even. You even talk about those, what the rewards are for this patience, but that how difficult that patience is. When it seemingly, uh, you know, it could cause people to question whether their strategy is defective or not. Isn't that right? I think so. Uh, you wrote, Dave, that expect performance to differ from, uh, to differ from common benchmarks. Uh, it kind of ties back into that from an expectation standpoint. What are you getting at there? 
So this is what you were touching on when you first introduced the article, but anytime you're a diversified investor, your performance is going to differ from the benchmarks you see on TV. By design, right? And for whatever reason, people always, if they ask, oh, what did the market do today? They're going to turn on CNBC and they're going to look at either the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is basic, it's more or less the 30 biggest companies in the U.S., something like that. And the Standard & Poor's 500 Index, which is essentially the 500 biggest companies in the U.S., that's really one asset class. That's the largest, the largest U.S. U.S. More growth-oriented companies. Exactly. So, first of all, I don't think anyone should just own one asset class. I would not advise that anyone do that. It's not the end of the world if you do. At least you know, 500 companies is decent, but it's still one asset class. So if you're diversified, there's going to be times where your performance differs. I mean, it, it's kind of obvious, right? If right. you own different stuff, your performance is going to be right. different. But people still make that apples to oranges comparison. And what happens is they can start to think that their portfolio is defective. So using the recent example, if you compared the performance of the Standard & Poor's 500 index to the Vanguard Total World Stock Index that includes international stocks, you're going to think that you made a bad decision. You're like, oh, why did I do this? I'm underperforming the Standard & Poor's 500 index. There's something wrong with what, I, with what I'm doing. Maybe I need to make a change. And the answer is no. You, there, in fact, your portfolio, in my opinion, is better. It's more diversified. It has small companies. It has international. It's just objectively, I think it's a more uh, defensible portfolio, more reasonable portfolio. But there can still be long periods of time, not just this year. There can right. be periods of several years or where a, a global portfolio will underperform a benchmark. And that can, like I said, it can really make you second guess. But you need to make sure, like I said, if you own a global portfolio, either that you're comparing it to a globally diversified benchmark or just recognize that you're not going to closely track the benchmarks you see on TV and be okay with that. In other words, you in your blog, which by the way, you can go to rudywealth.com uh, to get the blog. And if you're on Facebook Live, I think Paul's going to attach that as well. I thought it was interesting and you included a chart. People, I think this is one of our better blogs that was been written for Rudy Wealth Management. There, there's two or three that stick out in my mind. This one certainly is one of those top three. Uh, and, and so I, you know, so again, spoken like a true father, but I read it and I thought, wow, Dave, this is really good. You sure you wrote this? Uh, anyway, you wrote since 1970. This is from a study done by Dimensional Fund Advisors when you used to work there. Uh, from sev uh, 1970 to 2017, uh, the S&P 500 did better than the global portfolio 19 times and worse, 29 times. But you think about those 19 times that it wasn't, you know, that the S&P 500 was better or, yeah, it was better. And some of those, not only that, were longer p periods of time, and that really goes to what the, what you're talking about. Right. If you get if you're going to be diversified, you're not buying a conventional benchmark, which by its very nature means that you have an unconventional portfolio. That's not a negative thing; it's just what it is. And because of that, you have to set your expectations differently. And I think that's what gets missed. I don't think people set their ex they don't align the expectations with their diversified strategy. And I think people make decisions and draw conclusions on way too short of a time horizon. So they'll see three, four, five years of, quote, underperformance relative to a benchmark that they see on TV and think that that tells them something about the future. It means that the S&P 500 has 
you know, it's a better investment than their global portfolio. And that's just way too short of a time horizon to draw any conclusion. And that circles back to, and we're, we're going to be done here in about 30 seconds, is when you really look at successful investors and p investors that are not, it was usually a behavior problem that was the issue. It's not having, maintaining that faith, patience, and discipline to stay with the diversified strategy. Even when diversification works, even when you wish it wouldn't, it's still working because it's, beha because it's behaving differently. Maybe it's in a sense that you don't like, but it's behaving differently, which is that you're after. Well, Dr. Fred, thanks for joining thanks us. And uh, uh, David and uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us. For Paul Rudy's On The Money, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody, for your calls today and, and text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.